And now, Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would feed us our daily bread with it, that you would nourish our souls, that you would strengthen our souls and our hearts. We pray that Christ would be glorified and that we would clearly see our need for him. We also pray for our children. We remember that our children are a gift from you. They're a reward from you. And we pray for their salvation in due time, Lord, that the seeds that are planted today would bear a rich harvest. And we pray this not only for children outside of the womb, but also for the children who are in here inside of the womb. All in order, Lord, that Christ would be glorified. We pray that you would use this time to grow us in his likeness in order that we would see and find in him the greatest treasure that we could ever find anywhere. That we would see the worthlessness of the things of this world and the worthiness of Christ as we study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we are going to be in John chapter 8 today, uh, so please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles out in the foyer uh, on the counter over there. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses uh, 48 to 59 today, John chapter 8, verses 48 to 59. And with this, we're actually going to be concluding our study of John chapter 8, which we've been in for a couple months now, but as we conclude our study of this chapter, we'll also be seeing the conclusion of this conversation that has lasted for so long. It actually started back in chapter 7, this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, you might recall, we can do a quick review of this conversation. Uh, It began with the Pharisees already being hostile toward Jesus, uh, because, the, because of what happened back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Well, the, the hostility that began there just resumed once we got to chapter 7 at the Feast of Booths. And they desired to kill Jesus. We were told explicitly they desired to kill Jesus if he showed up. And yet, one of the main themes of these two chapters is that even though these evil men wanted to to slay him, wanted to murder him, nobody was able to lay a hand on him because his time had not come yet. And of course, that is something that we're going to to see really take place at the end of this passage that we're looking at today. But going back to chapter 7, we saw how this conversation in particular uh, began, how this dialogue got started. It started with Jesus teaching the crowds at the feast, and the Pharisees were listening. And as they're listening, they just couldn't believe their ears because they recognized that Jesus wasn't trained up as a rabbi the same way that they were. And so they exclaimed in chapter 7, verse 15, how has this man, they're speaking about Jesus, how has this man become learned even Uh, having never been educated. And what that revealed is that their pride was unsettled by the authority and the knowledge that Jesus taught with. They were educated. These Pharisees, they, they were educated. How somebody like Jesus, the son of a carpenter, could possibly know more than them and teach with more authority than they did, it it irritated them, uh, especially given the hostility that already existed between them. And then we got to John chapter 7, verses 37 and uh, 38, where, where, Jesus, uh, where we read this, where Jesus says, uh, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood out and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Of course, that's a gospel invitation. And the conflict resumed on the last day of the feast with Jesus offering salvation right there. And it was really all downhill from there. It really just increased in hostility from that point. After that point, the Pharisees just get more and more hostile. And as they become more hostile, they actually become less and less rational uh, and more irritated, more agitated with Jesus. So coming into chapter 8, Jesus said in verse 12, again, a gospel invitation, 
I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the response of the Pharisees to that invitation was to cross-examine him as if he were being put through the, the system of trying a criminal. He warned them in response. He warned them repeatedly that they would die in their sin if they would not believe in him. And the response of the Pharisees was essentially just to ask Jesus, well, who do you think you are? To threaten us with that. Jesus told them that they would know who he is when he was lifted up on a cross. And at that point, there were actually some converts. By the way, you guys can open some windows if it gets a little hot and stuffy in here. So he, he, he starts preaching the cross. And some people are converted. Some believed in him. Some simply believed him. They believed some of the things he said, but they didn't believe in him. Not savingly. And so he tried to encourage them to take that final step of, of, of putting saving faith in him, of believing savingly in him. And he said to them, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And at that point the conversation became hostile once again because these false converts, these false believers were convinced that they were saved by their relation, their ancestral relation to Abraham. But one of the things that Jesus does is he points out, you're not sons of Abraham. Physically they were, but not spiritually. They they weren't sons of Abraham because if they were sons of Abraham, they'd do what Abraham did. They would love Jesus. They would believe the gospel. Instead, these men were sons of the devil because they did what their father did. They were liars, and they wanted to kill Jesus. So regardless of their Abrahamic lineage, they were not children of Abraham, not true children of Abraham. See, the fact is, God has never, ever saved a single person because of their ancestral heritage. He's never saved one person based on their ethnicity. He's never saved one person based on their nationality. God has always had one plan of salvation. He saves only on the basis of grace received through faith alone in Christ alone. And we remember that Jesus actually brought up the example of Ishmael. Ishmael was proof that being a descendant of Abraham is absolutely worthless without also having the faith of Abraham. The Pharisees only thought in terms of the physical. They thought that to be a child of Abraham was to be in the genetic family tree. But Jesus pointed out to them that they were children of the devil. Because they did what the devil does. They refused to believe the truth. They hated the truth. And they wanted to kill Jesus, who is the truth. Now, this has been a really interesting conversation. A very long conversation. But what we've seen is that Jesus has obliterated every single response that these Pharisees could try to come up with. He's stayed a step or two ahead of them the whole time throughout this conversation. So the conversation is actually going to end in the passage that we're looking at today. It's going to end the same way so many uh, conversations end today, especially with social media, when one party is unable to respond to the arguments of the other party. It starts getting personal. Now, if you're arguing with a young child, you don't expect a young child to be able to argue their case very well, typically, just because they haven't learned how to, how to argue coherently yet. They, they haven't learned how to think critically. They haven't learned how to apply logic, and so on and so forth. And so what you expect to hear from, say, a, a two- or three-year-old child uh, is a retort, something like, well, well you're a meanie pants, you know? What did they do? They just made it personal, right? You know, something along those lines. But the sad reality is that adults do the same thing when they don't know how to respond to an argument. They resort to what's known as ad hominem arguments. There's actually a name for that kind of argument because it's something that's pretty common. Ad hominem. An ad hominem argument is basically an argument that doesn't attack or address the argument. Instead, it attacks the person making the argument. 
That's what happens with the Pharisees in the passage that we'll be looking at today. They make it personal. Instead of attacking Jesus' arguments, they will attack Jesus' character. And as they do in this passage to come, we'll see Jesus model how to respond when somebody attacks or maligns or insults us personally. Now, do you ever think we might come across something like that as Christians? People attacking us instead of our arguments? If you live your life faithfully, friends, there's a very good chance that you know exactly what that's like. You've probably been in that position. You've probably been personally slandered. But the point of this passage is this. The point of this passage is that following Jesus means seeking honor from God, recognizing that the honor and the respect of men is fleeting and worthless. Following Jesus means seeking honor from God, recognizing that the honor and the respect of fallen man is worthless and fleeting. So the passage that we looked at previously centered around the relation of the Jews to Abraham, and that's going to continue to be the center of the discussion that we look at today in this passage. In fact, it's worth noting that there are 11 references to Abraham uh, in this chapter, and there are no references to Abraham outside of this chapter in the book of John. But let's start by looking at verses 48 to 50. We read, The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Now the argument that the Pharisees present here I mean, it kind of says it all. It kind of shows their hand. It shows how they're feeling. And they're feeling irritated. They're feeling angry. Um, They are out of ammunition, though. And you can see that in what they say. They're angry enough to use what was actually considered to be an ethnic slur. Samaritan. Now, you have to remember that in the minds of the Jews, the Samaritans were not... They were not even human, fully human. They were basically subhuman, they were filthy, and they were despicable. Worst of all, in their minds, to be a Samaritan meant that you were irredeemable. In other words, God, God's grace was, was not enough to reach you if you were a Samaritan, because these people disregarded the law of God. And so therefore, in the minds of, of the Jews, these people could not be saved. They were apostates, they were blasphemers, they were heretics, all the, all the names that you could give them. So why do they say this to Jesus? Why do they say uh, that he not only has a demon, that, but that he's, he's a Samaritan? I mean, you might say, since they considered the Samaritans to be heretics and apostates, you might say it's because they considered themselves to be masters of the law, uh, the law of Moses. And so if anybody was teaching something that was contrary to what they taught, uh, they must be disregarding the law. That person must be disregarding the law, uh, just like the Samaritans did. That's possible. That's why they accuse him of being a Samaritan. Um, But I'd say that it's a lot more likely that it's because they realized that they did not have a leg to stand on, so to speak, against Jesus. And so they just decided to punch below the belt, as you might say. In other words, this is the theological equivalent of throwing a temper tantrum that you might see in a small child. Because the rational response, what would the rational response have been? It would have been to to appeal to the Torah. How about that? Appeal to the Torah? How about appealing to the prophets or or citing the wisdom literature like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes from, from the Scriptures? That would have been a rational, intelligent response. But instead, how do they respond to Jesus? With name calling. With name-calling, and once again, accusing him of having a demon. But I want you to see how Jesus responds to that. First of all, he ignores the ethnic slur. He ignores the fact that they they accuse him of being a Samaritan. But then he goes on to immediately deny the accusation that he has a demon. 
And then he tells them once again that he is doing the Father's will. I mean, now let's think about this rationally for a second. If he was, if he was possessed by a demon, wouldn't following the Father's will be the last thing that he would be doing? And despite the fact that he was simply honoring God, he was receiving dishonor from these men who claimed to honor God themselves. But here's the principle, friends. God's people have always received dishonor from the world. God's people have always received disrespect and dishonor from unregenerate men. Think of the way that the prophets of the Old Testament were cast out, the way that they were rejected and maligned and ignored and mocked or put to death. It's because unregenerate man does not want to hear what God has to say. The world does not hear, does not want to hear what God has to say. That's why Jesus said in the previous verse, verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. So why could they not hear the words of God? Because they were unregenerate. A dead person cannot, does not hear. And to this day, Jesus still receives dishonor from unregenerate people every day. Let's just take the, the third commandment, which is you shall not take the name of your Lord, the Lord your God in vain. Violating this command is one of probably the most common ways that people outwardly disregard and disrespect Jesus. It's not a coincidence that there's no other religious system in the world with a God whose name people use as a replacement for a curse word. And how many times do you hear that? I mean, you, you hear it all the time. Sometimes you, you, you even hear it from Christians who should know better. They, they, could, they could swear, they could, they could say, you know, a profane word, but instead they replace that profane word with God or Jesus or Christ. Let me just say this. For a Christian, this will not result in the loss of your salvation, but you will have to stand before God and give an account for that someday. If you're somebody who does that, who uses the Lord's name in vain, let me just warn you that the day will come when you will wish that your tongue had just rotted out of your mouth so that you could not speak the Lord's name in vain. If you are someone who types things on social media, if you type things like OMG, let me warn you that you will one day wish that your fingers had been smashed at a young age so that you could not type those words. Jesus is God. And God's name is holy. Do you know what it means for something to be holy? It's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we're so fallen. But something that's holy is clean and should not be defiled, to say the very least. And to dishonor Jesus' name or God's name by using it as a replacement for a vile word, to say the very least, it's not something to be taken lightly. It is a desecration of something that is holy. And yet, as Gordon Ketty notes in his commentary, Quote, from Christ to Jesus and my God, and worse, millions execrate the Son of God and his Father every day with hardly a thought as to what they're doing. End quote. So Jesus points out to these Pharisees that that's what they're doing. They're not honoring him. They're defiling something that's holy. Despite the fact that he was just honoring the Father. And there will be very, there will very likely be times in your life, friends, when you aren't honored by men, when you are seen as something vile by men, even though you're simply trying to honor God in what you're doing. So my first piece of advice to you is try not to take it personally. It's really not you. 
instead see it as a fulfillment of what Jesus said. He said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So Jesus models for us how to think and how to respond when we are personally maligned. First of all, he points out that He's not doing what he's doing for his glory. Rather, what he's doing is for the glory of God. And he's taking a hard pass on the praise of men. Taking a hard pass on the praise of men. That's something that, by the way, is a struggle for every one of us. It's it's something that is not natural. And when I say that, I mean that our flesh just loves the praise of men. We like to be liked. We don't like to be disliked. We want to be liked, and thus it's a battle for every single one of us to not set our hearts on the praise of men. Proverbs 29.5 says, a man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Let me read that again. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. See, the reality is that the flesh loves flattery. But God warns us against that. The thing is, the person who flatters you is setting a trap for you because the more you are flattered, the more you will enjoy being flattered. And the more you enjoy being flattered, the more you will expect to be flattered and rely on being flattered. And the more you rely on being flattered, the less likely you are to actually have convictions of your own that you're willing to hold and stand by. You will instead do what you need to do to avoid trouble with men. That's something that is a battle for every one of us. We don't like being in trouble. We don't like being disliked. It's easier to go along with what men are telling us to do or expecting us to do than to be obedient to God. So eventually you reach the point where instead of doing what you have the conviction to do, you do what you need to do in order to keep receiving praise and flattery from men. So the first response, therefore, to having your character maligned is to remember that you are not seeking, if you're a Christian, you are not seeking the honor of men. Rather, examine your motives and ask yourself, are you seeking to please God? Are you seeking to honor God? Following Jesus means seeking after honor from God and recognizing that the honor and respect of fallen man is fleeting and it is worthless. So let's make sure that we understand before we continue here that just because Jesus says that he's not seeking his own personal glory does not mean that it would not be given to him. It would be. It would be and he knew it. He knew that he would receive glory in time. He knew that God would glorify him because he came to fulfill the will of the Father perfectly perfectly. He would be blameless, and he would be exalted for that. Because of his perfect obedience, God would exalt him. Philippians chapter 2 verses 8 to 11 says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that God the Father will be glorified when Christ is glorified and when men confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, Paul wrote that years, decades after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. So so how could Jesus have known what Paul was going to write years in the future? It's because he knew the Scriptures, and the Old Testament Scriptures attest to this exact same thing. In Isaiah 45, 23, God says, To me, every knee will bow, every tongue will swear. So Paul, when he wrote Philippians, was making that connection that this Jesus is the same God who said this back in Isaiah. And Jesus, who knew the Scriptures 
and who knew who he was knew that this would be fulfilled as well. He knew that his time for receiving glory would come. The question that we have to ask ourselves, friends, is are we willing to aim for a higher praise than what the world offers? Are we willing to aim for a higher praise than what the world offers? If God has commanded us to meet on Sundays, if he has commanded us to gather, and men tell us we cannot gather, which are you going to do? Who are you going to obey? Does the world have any say in what we do on Sunday? No. It doesn't. No governor has the right to withhold from us what God has given to us. And he has given us a command to gather. So are you willing to aim for a higher praise than what the world offers? Would you rather hear the praise of men for you, or would you rather hear the voice of Christ as you enter into your eternal rest? These words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because make no mistake about it, whichever you prefer, you will live for and you will strive for. Jesus is relentless with the gospel. His grace is so abundant in this passage. I love it. He's just relentless with the gospel. Even after having his character assailed and reviled and maligned, he doesn't stop preaching the gospel. That doesn't stop him from putting a word of, of hope and encouragement into the ears of those who had yet to believe. Look what he says in verse 51. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word he will never see death. Now Jesus had, had just warned them in the previous verse that they would be judged. There's one who seeks and, and one who judges. He wanted them to know that there would be a severe consequence for rejecting his gospel invitation, for rejecting his word. And that consequence, of course, would be spending eternity in hell. But here's the hope. He, he, he puts hope out in front of them. And, and for whom? For all who do what? What does he say? Who keep his word. Who keep his word. What does that mean? It means obedience. It means they believe in him savingly and from that faith proceeds obedience. They're not saved by their obedience. Rather, their obedience flows from the fact that they have been saved. Now, anytime Jesus starts a passage or a sentence or, or anything off with the words truly, truly, that means that we want to be paying very close attention because those words always serve as a preface for something that is profoundly important. Now, earlier in the conversation, Jesus had said something similar. Back in verses 31 and 32, he said, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Free from what? Free from sin. Free from deception. And now Jesus wants to make sure that they and, and we understand that in him there is also freedom from death. Now, of course, when we say that, we're not talking about physical death. And every Christian martyr in history is proof of that, right? No, Jesus is not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death, which is worse than physical death. So th this is actually just echoing the same offer that he made when he said that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Later in the book, Jesus will say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So Jesus isn't saying that people won't physically die. But you see, without Jesus, this world is in a perpetual state of death. It's in a perpetual state of darkness. A perpetual state of spiritual death. Separation from the source of life, which is Jesus. Jesus is the source of life. Without him, all a person can be is dead, spiritually dead. All that the unregenerate 
experience day in and day out is some degree of death. And one day they will experience death more fully in the second death when God casts every unrepentant rebel into the outer darkness, into eternal conscious torment in hell. And there's only one way to escape that second death. And that is by believing in Jesus. So here's the second response when your character is attacked. Somebody pulls an ad hominem argument on you, if you want to call it an argument. What do you do? You keep preaching the gospel. That's hard, huh? Because the flesh doesn't want to do that. The flesh wants to respond and insult somebody back. But Jesus models for us here that when your character is maligned, Number one, make sure that your motives are pure. Make sure that what you're doing is for the glory of God. Make sure you're trying to honor God in what you're doing. Number two, keep preaching the gospel. Even as they're continuing to attack you and slander you, look for a way to continue proclaiming the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Maybe somebody will be saved by your persistence in preaching. Maybe not, but you don't know that they won't. You you don't know what God will do with a seed that you plant. None of us ever do. All All we're instructed to do is to scatter seed and to scatter it abundantly because that's what we've been instructed to do, so we do it. We don't care about the outcome. What we care about is our heart. Are we doing it for the glory of God? Are we doing it in obedience to God, keeping his word? The Pharisees, instead of responding positively to this gospel invitation. They see it as a confirmation of their previous allegation that Jesus has a demon. Let's look at what they say in verses 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? What an interesting way to respond to such a loving and gracious gospel invitation. You see, Jesus, by saying that anyone who who keeps his word will never taste death, he's offering them grace. He's offering them, though, this is what we need to see. This is what the Pharisees are seeing. He's offering them something that Abraham never did something that Abraham never could. And so they take that claim as confirmation of their accusation that Jesus must have a demon. But by doing this, they're only demonstrating the truth of what Jesus said back in verse 43 when he said, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. And that is just a vivid illustration, a clear reminder of the depravity of natural man. Spiritual truth is foolishness to natural, unregenerate man. They cannot understand it. They don't want to understand it. All they want is their opinion. All they want is their perspective regarding Jesus to be confirmed, to be validated. As A.W. Pink notes, quote, no matter how simply and plainly the truths of Scripture may be expounded, the unregenerate are unable to understand them because their interests are elsewhere. Unable because they will not humble themselves and cry unto God for light. Unable because their hearts are estranged from him. End quote. Now take that truth and think about it for a second. Shouldn't we be thankful that we have any understanding of the scriptures at all? Yeah, we should. If, if you're having the worst day of your life, but you understand that, and, you, and you believe that Jesus is Lord and you are keeping his word, you have so, so much to be thankful for just in that. The person who thinks that their, their understanding comes not because God has given them understanding of spiritual truth, but because they've, they've always gone to church or because they, they've always you know, studied or they've done this or they've done that. Do you see how that 
perspective, how that view not only deprives God of the thanks that's due to him for giving them understanding, but they also deprive themselves of the joy of thanksgiving over that very thing. If you have any spiritual understanding, if you have any understanding of spiritual truth, give thanks because it's not your doing. It's not your doing. And the Pharisees are proof of that because they are separate from the source of life. They are spiritually dead, and as a result, they have no understanding. See, if those who keep Christ's word never taste death, then Jesus is offering them something that no prophet ever offered, including Abraham, nor were they ever able to offer those things. So to their ears, to the the ears and the minds of the Pharisees, it it just seemed like Jesus was saying something that was absolutely ludicrous, something completely ridiculous, because all they could think of was the physical. They're thinking of everything in the physical realm. They're not seeing anything in the spiritual realm. But Jesus is speaking spiritually. He's speaking of spiritual life, spiritual death. And for Jesus to make a claim like this was to make a claim to be greater than the prophets. It was to make a claim to be even greater than Abraham, greater than all the heroes in Scripture. Is that not something that only God can do? Something that only God can offer? Yeah, only God can make this offer. But they refuse to believe that Jesus is God in human flesh, that Jesus is the incarnate God. And so they revert to insisting once again that Jesus has a demon. Again, they're out of ammunition. They continue to attack his character. Let's look at how Jesus responds in verses 54 to 56. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Jesus puts the verdict here in the simplest, clearest terms he can. These people who will not believe in him, these rebels who will not keep his word, much less hear it, they do not know God. Now if you had asked those Pharisees, do you know God? They would have said, of course I am, I'm a Pharisee. But the verdict is, they don't know God, no matter what they might say with their tongues. They did not know God because they did not seek God. They did not seek God because they did not want God. And if they did not want or seek or know God, they certainly didn't love or honor God. And it was obvious. What Jesus is saying here, when he delivers the verdict that they don't know God, it is completely obvious. When I went on a mission to the country of Moldova back in 2005, I was told through email by the missions organization that somebody would be at the airport to pick me up. And when I got there and got through customs, uh, th- this young guy comes up to me and he goes, Hi, Toby, I'm here to pick you up. Follow me. And I, and I did. Um, but a- as we're walking to his car, I asked him how he knew who I was. Uh, keep in mind that this was before social media, so he hadn't seen pictures of me or anything. And his response was, You're wearing shorts. Moldovans don't wear shorts when they travel, and I was wearing shorts. But you see, my ignorance of Moldovan culture was obvious to somebody who knows Moldovan culture. And likewise, these Pharisees, they were completely ignorant about God, completely in the dark when it came to God, and it was obvious to anyone who knows God. That's why when he offered them spiritual life by believing in him, They just thought he was nuts. They they accused him of having a demon. They, They basically think he's crazy. But the important thing to see is that Jesus continues to simply tell the truth. He says, if I say I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Do you see how he keeps coming back to that? Keeping his word. How important keeping 
the word is. No matter what the Pharisees said, no matter what they thought, no matter what anyone thought, Jesus knew what was true because he was keeping the word. He knew that God's word was true and he was going to keep standing on it, keep keeping it no matter what. The Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 summarizes a truth that is vital for us with its opening words. It says this, quote, The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. End quote. See, the Scriptures are not a sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. They are the only Sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Why would you keep something else? Why would you stand on something else? Why would you allow anything else to shape your ideas and your perspectives of the world? See, if people think that you're out of your mind for believing and yielding yourself entirely to Scripture, if they mock you for believing a book that's thousands of years old uh, and surely, in their minds, surely outdated by now, all you can say is God's Word is true. And whatever is opposed to God's Word, whatever sets itself against God's Word, is necessarily a lie See, friends, if, if people are going to mock us, and they are, if people are going to assail our character, and they are, let it be because we will not yield to their demands, but instead we continue to keep God's word. Let it be because we stand on God's word as the one and only standard of truth that every other truth claim is measured against. That way, if they mock us, if they hate us, if they reject us, whatever. It's because they mock and reject and hate God and his word. Now, some people, this is a very common argument. Some people will say, well, why don't we try something else? Why don't we try a softer approach? You know, something other than, than proclaiming the truth so directly and so bluntly. You know, shouldn't we try a different strategy than, than proclaiming the truths of Scripture forthrightly and simply? I mean, what if we tried making videos of talking fruits and vegetables who act out Bible stories instead? And instead of giving them the gospel, we'll just focus on moralism and make sure that each lesson is a moral lesson rather than urging them to repent and believe in Jesus. Friends, that's called pragmatism. Pragmatism means let's just do whatever works. That's not what Scripture instructs. That's not what Scripture allows. The problem with that, the problem with pragmatism, is that the direct preaching of the Scripture is the means that God uses to impart life and salvation to rebels and sinners just like you and me. If you try to reach people in a way that doesn't offend them, if you try to reach people in a kinder and gentler way without confronting them in their sin, if you just offer them deistic therapeutic moralism, and there has been a ton of this kind of thing over the last 30 or 40 years, all you do is leave them blind and ignorant of their need for a Savior. Jesus reminds these Pharisees one last time that they're nothing like Abraham. They're not his children. They're not his children at all. Unlike these Pharisees, Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day. Now, if they thought that Jesus was crazy before, they must have really thought that he was crazy now. Because Abraham had been dead for somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,800 to 1,900 years. How in the world could Abraham have possibly seen Jesus' day? That's, that's what the Pharisees would have been thinking. And the answer is, one thing is clear. He did see it. God somehow showed it to him. And I believe that there was one specific instance in Abraham's life when 
God did show it to him. God came to Abraham and instructed him to take his son, his only son, Isaac, up on the mountain, uh, up on Mount Moriah, to sacrifice Isaac. Now that must have been extremely painful for Abraham to process. That must have been a very difficult pill for Abraham to swallow, so to speak, because this was Abraham's promised offspring that we're talking about, the one through whom God's promises would be passed to future generations. But Abraham, he he knew what God had said, but he also knew God's character. He, He knew that he had no choice but to trust and obey God, but he also knew and believed God's promise to produce a great nation through Isaac. But at that point in time, Isaac wasn't married and didn't have any offspring, didn't have any children. And so Abraham is thinking through this, thinking rationally, and he reasoned that if Isaac was going to die, that his death wouldn't be final because God is faithful. Instead, he believed, he reasoned that there would be a resurrection. And that's what the book of Hebrews tells us. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Abraham, therefore, expected to return from Mount Moriah with Isaac coming alongside him because he believed that God would resurrect Isaac. Now, of course, we know the story. We know that God intervened, and he didn't allow Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Instead, the Lord provided what the Lord required, a ram to be sacrificed. And at that moment, When that happened, I believe it's not only possible, but I think it's likely that Abraham understood that one day God would provide what he required by sacrificing his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the salvation of all who would believe in him. And 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 he understood that God would also resurrect that son, his son, from the dead. That he would resurrect Jesus from the dead. By faith, Abraham saw Jesus' day from afar. He believed. And he rejoiced and delighted in it. Again, though, the Pharisees could not hear Jesus' word. They, they couldn't understand it. And, and that's what brings an end to this conversation. Let's continue, verses 57 to 59. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, of course, we know and they knew that Jesus was clearly not old enough for Abraham to have seen him. You know, he's, he's 30 years old or so, 30 to 33 years old. Uh, Abraham has been dead for 1,800 to 1,900 years. So the, the Pharisees are thinking Jesus is not old enough for Abraham to have seen him. But that leads to Jesus making one final ultimate claim about himself. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now people today will say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Right? You ever hear anybody say that Jesus never claimed to be God? And yet, these people, these people who were in his presence, who knew the law, who knew the customs, who knew the culture, they did not fail to make, make, the, make the connection. They understood what people today so often do not understand. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be God incarnate. They understood that Jesus was saying I am God. Notice, he doesn't say before Abraham was born, I was. No, he claimed to be the great I am. This is a reference to Exodus 3.14. And the response of the Pharisees to hearing Jesus claiming to be God is to pick up stones to kill him. This is how we know that they understood what he was, what he was claiming because that's the penalty for blasphemy. Little did they understand that they themselves, the Pharisees themselves, they were the blasphemers. They refused to believe. Jesus had warned them, unless unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And this is the fate that they chose for themselves on that day. And so what does Jesus do? He does a miracle. 
He, he departs from them. He, there's no place to really hide. But he departs from them so that they could not take him. And of course, that is the height of judgment against a person when God removes the preaching of the gospel. See, there does come a time, friends, when departing from mockers and scoffers is the wisest course of action. In Jesus' case, his, his time had simply not yet come. But these Pharisees had made their choice to die in their sin. They would rather spend eternity in hell than humble themselves before the Lord. And you must know, friends, that the same consequences in place for those today who refuse to humble themselves before God and to believe in Jesus Christ. So the question is, are you willing to humble yourself before Him and to keep His word? Because if you are, then forget what your unbelieving friends might say. Forget whatever social or practical consequences there may be for believing in and devoting your life to Christ, turn to him today in saving faith and know that your sins are forgiven and that you've been redeemed by the shed blood of Christ. You might be mocked. You might be rejected. You might be hated by people. But keep in mind, they hated Jesus first. The final principle here is that Jesus proclaimed truth in the midst of his enemies. And we've got to do the same thing. It's a dark culture out there, but the darkness needs light. Whatever earthly treasure you might lose for following and proclaiming the truth of the gospel, it does not compare to the blessings that we have in Christ or to the riches of God's grace that are in Christ. Following him may be costly, but refusing to follow him is infinitely more costly. And so, if you have heard his voice today, do not harden your hearts in disbelief, but deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Because he is the one true living God, and he has promised that if we will acknowledge him before men, that he will acknowledge us before the Father. And so, may we live our lives for the sake of honoring and pleasing God instead of men. And as we do, may he use us as we keep his word to plant many seeds and to see many drawn to saving faith in Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we confess before you that we, apart from your grace, would be dead in our sin, that we would stand guilty before you of sinning against you in the most heinous and grieving ways. And we also confess to you, Lord, that even, even the most mature of us has the struggle to reject the praise and the accolades of the world. Apart from your Spirit living in us, directing us, strengthening us, and apart from your grace, the world would be so enticing we pray that you would help us to see the worthlessness of man's fleeting praise and help us see that Christ is the greatest treasure of all in order that we may live our lives in light of the reality that we will one day enter into your presence with the desire to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. We realize, Father, it's only by your grace. And so we pray for more grace to be courageous and to shine the light of the gospel in a dark culture for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.